But it seems to me that um, what we respect most is power. Now here's the thing. You can also go with size here too. If it's big, it's good. Here's the problem. This is still Egypt. That this is often synonymous with evil. Okay? Just watch one episode of Real World. <laughs> See, what's real? What's real? This is what's real. This is what's real right here. Pain, but especially the ability to inflict pain. All of American television, okay, that's too much. 97.3% of American television, tell me a reality show that is not rejoicing in other people's pain, which is not just voyeurism. What is America's next top model except making beautiful women cry? That's all it is. Let's see if you make beautiful women cry. You stink, you have to go home. And you have to go home. Then you tell people why you stink and why you had to go home. In front of everybody, yes. Okay. So this is what real. You ask your kids who's important. It's people who have stuff. It's people who control opinions. It's people who know things. People who have status. People who live in big houses. People who control the internet. People who can make other people do what they want. The problem is, is that... Regularly, that is the pure definition of evil. Okay? Here's the next problem, which you see from the Egyptians and the Israelites. And this is, this is a fairly brilliant chapter about how the people who are oppressed become oppressors. Okay? You grow up in a bad situation. How many of you grew up and said, I'll never be like my old man? And then you wake up one morning and you look in the mirror and guess what? Your mom is staring right back at you. Yeah? Yeah? Huh? It was a what? Sometimes it is a good thing, but there are regularly people, you know, this is like, you know, uh, yeah. Well, God bless you if you can say it, you know. If it was a good thing, you know, God bless you. But one of the, you know, one of the reasons, you know, people who, who you know, go talk to other people that can help with this is you don't know how, when people come to get married, very rarely do I have, two people who still have marriages intact. And one of the things we talk about is, gosh, how are you going to know how to act in a marriage? If your parents fought all the time, or your parents were divorced, you grew up without a mom or you grew up without a dad, how are you going to know how to, right? How do people know what to do? They imitate other people. So we grow up, and kids grow up in a culture where, oh, that's going to go away. Don't worry. That's fine. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't do either. You're soft-hearted. Go pick your boat up for a second. Our kids grow up in a, in a culture where it's very likely they will imitate what they see. Pick your book up for just a second. Let's just read a little bit. Um, you know, <clears throat> Just kind of look at 162 at the, at the, at the, at the uh, just like six lines above the three stars there, and then six lines below. 162. Right, the, the, the paragraph starts, so how was Moses to rip off the veneer of all this power and majesty and beauty and success? Which would be exactly the question to you. You talk to your kids about it or you live your own life. How are you to rip off the veneer of power and beauty and might and stuff and opinions and knowing and status and success, right? 
Because after all, the people who are leading them astray have more voice and more money and more status and more stuff than you have, so how could you actually know anything? Right? As far as they knew, this is six lines above, how was Moses to fix this? This is six lines above-ish, above the stars. As far as they knew, this was what worked. And you see, this is the great danger. And the great, you know what the great danger about evil is? It works. This is great. This is the thing. Evil actually works. There's great satisfaction in an evil way of making people do what you want. If you're the biggest bully on the playground, you sleep very well every night when you go home. Right? There's all kinds of people who comfort themselves that they're the smartest person in the room. Or that they have the most stuff. Or that their name was in the paper favorably today. Right? So now what are you going to do? Because after all, evil works. Okay? As far as they knew, this was what worked. And it worked at least for a thousand years. What further need of witnesses? In their, if their imaginations were not thoroughly cleansed from the evil they were immersed in, they would end up doing the same thing as soon as they were in power themselves. It just perpetuates itself. Oppressing the weak and trampling on the helpless and bullying those under them with might and size in the name of whatever gods there were. This is where the ten plagues come in. The ten plagues were employed to expose the emptiness of evil to purge the Hebrew minds of all envious admiration of evil, to systematically demolish every God illusion or God pretension that evil uses to exercise power over men and women. William Blake wrote of the necessity of cleansing the doors of perception. If we want to see what is really going on in life, salvation in this case, not just what is reported in the newspapers, each of the ten plagues was an ammonia-laced scrub bucket of suds, for just such a cleansing. Now, <clears throat> where the church is at its worst is where the church begins to ask what works. And this is the greatest trouble in American society right now. And like all other heresy, you know, it's only partially true. It is true that when the church never responds, never does anything new, never looks out, never changes, never, 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 the church is wrong. On the other hand, when the church is meant to look just like the world, you can be sure that in a generation or two there will be no church. Okay? Which is why people who may be extraordinarily smart about the world are not always extraordinarily smart about the church. Upstairs, did you see, uh, Ganig left his stole, or Nelson, whichever one was up there this morning. And so now the kids have come through um, for, I think, their second or third round of private confession. I think I told you this before. They're not allowed to confess anything individually. All they're allowed to do is run through the rubrics. So they sit quietly, and they go through the service, and then the pastor absolves them, and he sits at their ear, and he points them toward the crucifix, and there's a little bit of smell of incense, and the lights are down, and the candles are up, and it's quiet so that every sense gets engaged. There was great fearfulness the first time we started doing this. Um, Now they're about on their second or third swing through, and now kids come in with a great ease of, I know what's going to happen, which was precisely the point. Confession is the exorcism 
that the church uses for people like you and people like me um, to come clean. I'll turn off my microphone for a second just because I don't. So much. Thanks for the reminder. I get where I am sometimes. It's happening more frequently, actually. So these were questions then that Luther gave everybody. Um, it was just presumed that everybody would ask these questions in um, on their way. Uh, you know, we're in this fascinating stage now. We're starting to work with a designer. In fact, we've got a, sort of an initial design for what the new sanctuary might look like, and um, coming up to the altar and what that might look like, and how to make that a reverent sort of thing. Um, all these things are happening that you know we have to figure out that we never really thought about before. It's going to be a very interesting next couple of months. Um, stay tuned. Did you have a question? I was just curious to know when there'll be some church stops. Yeah. Became, they became too holy for it. In, in our confessions, in the Augsburg Confession 1530 and then the Apology that comes shortly thereafter, the Catholics said, well, there you go now. You've done away with private confession. And then the Lutherans rolled back and said, we do it more than you do. That was the response. We do it more than you do. And you remember um, Luther used to wear his confessor out. In fact, 
and it's always fun if you've heard somebody for a while to say this, just go home because you've said enough. Uh, and Luther used to wear his confessor out. He was so taken by his sinfulness. Um, the guy basically said, this isn't going to go well if you keep thinking about yourself. Uh, Bugenhagen was his confessor. It's, it's interesting for you to think about Luther having a father confessor. There was a guy that Luther, who was arguably, you know, at least one of the most influential men of the 16th century and maybe in European history, having somebody who told him what to do and exactly he did that. It's very interesting. It falls out by the time um, people get pious, <laughs> to be honest with you. Oh, I don't need that anymore. Or those are just words. And whenever you sort of say those are just words, that's a, that's a great sadness. So it falls out by um, probably the middle of the 1600s. Great sadness for us. Yes, please. Pity. God bless you. Yes, by the time you were a child, by the time you were a child, it was reduced to announcing for communion. Yes, that was the euphemism for. You used to go and say, "I'm I'm a sinner," and then you would. Then you would come. That, yes, and then you had personal time with your pastor, which is what everybody wants, but they don't know how to have it. And here's the other thing. Then the liturgy, I don't know if you know this, didn't start with confession and absolution. The liturgy started with the invocation and the Kyrie because the presumption was everybody had already been. And even if you look in the book that we used this morning, it says, and I kind of complained when they put this out gently, it says, the divine service may start without confession and absolution, to which I wrote them and said... Of course it may, in a world where everybody's going to private confession. But in our world, now we're going to take away general confession with a bunch of people who private, they'll never confess. And they'll never hear absolution. So that was a good like, committee decision in an office somewhere in St. Louis. But for pastoral care, well, we don't, we don't need less confession. We need more in absolution. So that, that your grandfather still did it, I, I am not surprised but I bet that he was a minority, or else he was a bit of a rebel. One of those, one of those, or it may have been both. It may have been both. Yeah, real honestly, it's probably, it's probably both. He was a minority, and he was probably a bit of a rebel. So, but that wasn't, isn't that nice? Yes, please. Right. Was it a Lutheran school? I mean, why would you need forgiveness more than yeah, once a month? But you had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but All right, now, see, two things have gone wrong there already without casting aspersions on where you went to school. There's already two things that have gone wrong. One is that you have to go, which is actually one of the ways it fell out of Lutheranism. And you remember then, the retort to that was, in canon law, someplace it says, if you have a major confession, and I don't know if it's once or twice this year, you're no longer a member of the church, right? Or you're not... You know, you're, I mean, so there is this, if you ask your Catholic friends who at least practice a little bit, there'll be a number that they have to go to get it done. So, and that's the way the law works. The pastor of the church makes a rule. You meet the rule. The transaction is affected. Now you're fine. The other thing with the, I mean, parallel to confession falling out was the notion of the Eucharist. 
once a month was a glory time. A lot of times it was once a year or twice a year. And that is just, you know, that, that sort of mindset. I mean, with all that we know about the Eucharist, the Eucharist is Christ on earth, you know. I mean, that's it. It's just hard to, it's hard to think that way. That is such a, such a, oh, it's such a debilitating way to go after life. So anyway, I mean, I just give you this. I'm not necessarily to run through this, but I mean, I just wonder if you sort of do anything like this before you go. It was interesting. I'm, I'm going to, well, no, I'll just put my, I'm not going to shut up. Put my, put my, put my um, comments, put what I'm going to say in the context of what I said before. Um, I'd spent the day t- Tuesday preparing, uh, and, the, and, the, and, the, the, um, and I was up in the middle of the night a couple of times Tuesday. Um, well, let's just say I had a long list. <laughs> and then not to be able to go was not good. So um, you should be doing this. Uh, do you think you're a sinner? How do you know this? Do you see how this is objective? You see how it doesn't say, how do you know you're a sinner? Well, because I don't have a lot of stuff, or because my church doesn't work, or because I'm not too smart. You know, This is utterly subjective. How do you know... How do you know you're a sinner? Uh, uh, Well, I learned it from the Ten Commandments, which is an interesting counterpart to the Ten Plagues, of course. They had the Ten Plagues. You have the Ten Commandments. Are you sorry? What do you deserve? Horrible things. Do you hope that you're saved? Yeah. Why? Christ. Who's he? Son of God. How many gods? Just the one. What did Christ do? Died and shed his blood. Does he love you? He does. Are you coming to the sacrament? Where'd you get that? Well, I got it from Matthew. This is about point 12. Why do you believe? Because Christ told me to. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. You know, what do we do? Uh, How do we remember? 16, we may learn that no creature can make satisfaction. You know, our only joy and comfort's in him. You sort of run through. Now, that's sort of the Luther way. Now, let me just, on the other side is the Lutheranism way, okay? And then let me just show you how things kind of debilitate. Now, one needs to be careful because, you know, this got passed by, Folk who were trying to do their best, and it was in use for a while, although I think not very. Um, but, but, but look at this, or the following may be used. Okay, do you see this on the right side? And this is why people stop coming to confession. I ask you before God who searches your heart. Do you sincerely confess that you've sinned against God and you deserve wrath and punishment? Then declare so by saying, I do confess. Then meekly you say, I do confess. Well, verily you should confess. Yeah? I mean, so you give them the law, they confess under the law, and you give them some more law. Why doesn't anybody want to be Lutheran? I mean, come on. I'm just going to just pound you into submission. I mean, this is just nonsense. You know, the proper response to I do confess is, um, I'll tell you a story. Although, I'm going to tell you a story before the story. Um, when you come to confession, uh, it's, we don't, uh, you know, one of the ordination vows is that you don't speak of what happens in confession. So we don't, we don't speak, um, even if you come to pastors, pastors don't speak across about what's in confession. In fact, we don't know uh, who other people see. We just, don't, um, we just don't pay attention to that. We don't compare notes. Although uh, we're trying to get, you know, we try to get better at it because so much of this well, because we can't find confessors very easily, so we have to. There's a lot of self-learning, and that's extraordinarily unfortunate for us and for you. That having been said, there are moments of brilliance. So, um, one of the pastors, and so here's what you need to know: 
Uh, I don't know the person, I don't know the circumstance, I don't know the sin, but I know this. Um, someone came in and confessed, and then uh, the pastor sort of went through the thing. And then when it was over, um, the, then the person said, um, okay, now let's talk about the sin. And the pastor said, what sin? And then the person said, well, you know the sin. And the pastor went, what sin? And it took about the third time for the person to realize that if the Lord doesn't remember the sin anymore, then the pastor can't remember the sin anymore, and you can't remember the sin anymore. Does that make sense? You just don't talk about it anymore. You know, once people have said, I'm sorry, and you say, I forgive you, it's over, and that's never to be talked about again. And I don't know if you can understand that that, that's as, that is the same as having a demon cast out of you. That is the same as Israel going out from Egypt. It's the same thing. So I just, you know, whether it will ever come back for my generation, I mean, I'm still in search of. I've asked, uh, you know, a couple of people, and, um, and I tend to go to older men uh, who just, I mean, they just, I almost pity them when I ask them because they can't. You'd think I was asking for, for one of their kidneys, you know. I mean, uh, and then they avoid me kind of because I've sort of said, hey, will you do this for me? And I realize I've taxed them beyond their strength. So, I mean, the search kind of continues. But hope for our kids, you see, and for the next level of pastors who come up. Uh, I think right now, I'm trying to remember now, I think it's just the eighth graders. But I can't remember for sure. I can't remember if the seventh graders are in on that or not. I think it's the eighth graders. We'd do it with the seventh graders. Yeah. We just, all we're doing is getting, but I, here's the thing. The, the two things, um, you know, we're not alone with them. They come up in clumps of six or seven. And so all of them sit in the very back row out of earshot except the one kid who comes. And kids who decline don't come. We just, we just say, do you want to come? No, thanks. But I think we've only had... Five times we've been declined in a hundred confessions. And they're not allowed to say anything. Because what we don't want you, I don't want Joe coming home and saying, hey, the pastor's really dug it out of me today. In fact, but, but the interesting thing that's happening is kids are going, yeah, yeah but I got something to say. Right. Which is exactly where we want to get them to. We want to get them to the point where they've got something to say so that they'll say it and then they'll be done with it. But there's this, there's this delicate thing about working with you as a parent and us as a pastor. So you have to feel like your kid, one, isn't alone with us because we're never alone with kids. And two, isn't forced into anything. And that's the balance we've kind of struck. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah. So does that make sense? I just hope it all comes back to you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. You shouldn't. We've, we've urged the bishop that that is his position. Uh, should be. The bishop should be pastor to the pastors. Absolutely, it should be. Or he should appoint somebody who would do that. The problem is, is that in American society, the bishop has legalities. And... Um, uh, There was someone, one of the, you know, and I'll, there's a hundred interns, so you won't know who this is, but one of the interns came and said, I was advised by one of my professors not to confess with you. 
because you might find something out about me that then that might make me, you might have to say something that would make me unsuitable for ministry. And then I said, well, um, that's an objective, that's an objective assessment. If there was something in you that made you uh, unsuitable for ministry, I would, in fact, uh, uh, we'd have to work that through. See, So if you come in, Don, and confess murder today, um, I'll forgive you, and then we'll go to the police station together. <laughs> and that would fall under bearing fruit that befits repentance, you see. You can't lose your sins and have your sins. You gotta lo- if you're going to lose them, then you lose them. You can't lose them and then have them back. If you rob a bank, we forgive you, and then we'll go over and we're going to take the money back, okay? The problem is there's some things that can't be undone, right? You kill somebody? Or really, slander is a thing that's very difficult to undo. Uh, the, the old Zen thing about two things cannot be co- recalled, um, uh, a slanderous word and an arrow in mid-flight. Right? And you just, you just, there's some things that can't come back, uh, you know. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. In meetings with these thugs, and he said he kept having to send them out because people were coming for private confessions so they could have to suffer the next day. And I thought, what a great vision <coughs> And there is, upstairs I have a picture on the front of a magazine cover where a priest is sitting, must be Eastern European, um, someplace looks a bit poor and repressed. And there's a line of people um, standing behind, like they're lined up to go to work, go to vote, go to get a loaf of bread. And there's a priest um, sitting in, in a chair like this, and there's a man on his knees, and he's taken his stole, and he's pulled it over the man's lips at his ear so that the man can confess. Now, everybody in the whole scene, there's 200 people who know that he's confessing, but there's nobody who knows what he says. And that is the most natural thing. See, the thing that we got, I just challenge you in the New Testament, every place that Jesus forgives people, it's nose to nose. I mean, there is no, the closest thing you get to a group confession in Scripture is when he forgives both the soldiers who are pounding nails through him, and that's a bit out of necessity. Very difficult for him to get up and get one free at that point. If you look at people in the stories, it's always nose to nose. We had, an, uh, we, we aren't brave enough. You know, you think the things that we do, you know, you always, uh, well, we hear that we're on the edge at times. But um, we did think about, if you look upstairs, there's a chair, and, and the chair is not best, but, you know, we don't have a place for that, so we don't have a place for that. We wondered what would happen if for an hour on Wednesdays before the Lenten services, we would just put a chair there and let people come and whisper their confession, and then let sort of people trickle in and see that. And we didn't know, uh, one, if anybody would be brave enough, and then, two, 
how would that be seen by other people in the congregation? Would that be seen as uh, a natural sort of release of the pressure of sin, or would that be seen as, as a bit of, you know, pietistic showing off? And, there, you, know, this, you know, everything can go wrong. Or make people feel good. Yeah, I mean, yes, exactly. It can go, it can go wrong in a hundred ways. But the problem is, is everything, can, you driving a car today can go wrong in a hundred ways, you see. And so, so, much, so, so we're going to go a lifetime without having this because it could go wrong. I mean, well, just name something. You could choke on a steak. You know, I mean, just name something that couldn't go wrong. But we don't do that in any area of our life except Christ where, gosh, if we get too much Jesus, something horrible might happen. I am really bad. You see? You see why I need this? Yeah, because you can see it's just like oozing out of me, isn't it? <clears throat> yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's not complicated, but it is uh, foreign. Um, I don't know you well enough. I know you, you know, some, but I don't know you well enough to know if you have a best friend that you tell everything to and are still sure that you're, you're loved. But um, if you do, God bless you. That's good. Uh, most people don't have that or... or um, can't sort of go that deep. So often people say, well, if you knew me, you wouldn't like me. If I tell you that, you wouldn't like me. And, and real interesting, it really, I mean, I'm useless to you if whether I like you or not really has nothing to do with what I do. Um, you have to decide if you want me to be your pastor or your friend. It's nice if we can be both, but it's horribly difficult to be friend to a pastor, as I suppose you're finding out. Uh, there are very few people who can be friends to a pastor because at some point the pastor thing has to trump. I just read yesterday the indictment of a bishop. Uh, who had who had covered up um, the sexual misconduct of his brother, who was a priest under his care? And somebody sent me this for review, and you know, I like yeah, this is you know. And at one point in the testimony, he says, "At that point, I had to be brother to my I had to be brother to my brother rather than priest, rather than bishop." When he said that, the guy was cooked because he didn't know what was more important: his ordination as bishop. His consecration as bishop, I'm sorry, or his brotherness to his brother. So I think one thing is, is people are just scared what's going to be thought of them. I think another thing is, is we're just not used to doing anything that even remotely resembles this. If you ask people about their sins, we just don't have that sort of rigor in investigating ourselves. Now, there are particular things that we do that we feel bad about, but the problem is, is what we feel bad about is not the extent of what needs to be confessed. You know, we, 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 we have a piousness that, that, that maybe goes to pridefulness, which is a sin against the first commandment, and that's the real sin. We never get that far. It's like, these, it's like confessions you read in churches now where you confess, I know I disappointed you this week, oh Lord, and I know I didn't live up to my talents and the abilities you gave me in creation. None of that is false. It just doesn't rise to the level of poor, miserable sinner, which is the real problem. The real problem is I'm Egypt. That's my problem. You want to know something? And I, my spawn will be Egypt too, unless there's some divine intervention. And the world is just going to go. So we're afraid of it. We're not used to it. We're not honest. We don't know how to live. We don't know how to say we're sorry. How many of, pe- how many of you people can go to the person you've offended and say nose to nose, I'm sorry? And how many of you, when you go, expect to hear, I forgive you. That's over now. Okay? How many, how many people can do that? Almost nobody can do that. Almost nobody. Children can do it brilliantly. And you, you, you raise or ruin your kid 
by when they say that, whether or not you say, I forgive you and it's over. Now there is, I have learned, you know, a few things over the course of this, which for some people I do need to say, and it's very important to bear fruit that befits repentance. Or kind of what I said to Donna, which is, how are you going to undo this? For people who confess slander, I often say the responsibility lies with you now to go untell everybody you've told. It's almost an impossible task because it, you know, it goes like a disease. But you do, in fact, have to say to people, I mean, part of the Christian life is undoing whatever you can undo. Much of it you cannot undo. I mean, much of it you can't. But you need to undo what you can do. That's that's part of the Christian life. Yes, please. I'm always nervous when somebody starts that way. I really, I did that. That's always like, it's always unsettling. Nothing about you. I'm sure it's just about me. I'm always thinking to myself. Okay, here we go. Yeah, right. In the whole congregation. Right, yeah. It's it's a directive that I need to follow because that is what I made a commitment to. And so when you're talking about confession, I sometimes wonder, I, I believe that if there was a system set up in our church that kind of acted as if everybody would go and do it, if there was some kind of system, you know, like, Right, yeah, right. I I can speak for myself and I would say I would act as if that's what I was supposed to be doing and I would go regularly and you know what, quite honestly, I would look even right now, I look very forward to the day that comes that so that my children can see that there is that that is an important part. And I, I would follow and I would I would be happy to see it passed on to my children. Right. We, you know, we're trying to figure that out. And, and um, you know, every Lent we especially reflect on this. It's a, it's a difficult thing for us. Um, it's always di- pace is always a difficult thing for pastors. We don't know how hard we can push you. Um, and we never know what the reaction is going to be in advance. So let me give you a great example. My mother lives in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She sends me an email a week ago in February. Somebody has complained all the way back to her in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, that we rang bells at the moment of consecration. I'm not kidding you. On Christmas Eve. Honest to God, people, people are compl- This is what I mean about people can't go nose to nose with anybody. I mean, somebody, but here's the thing now. Here's the thing, though. I mean, this is just, this is, this is, this is just, ex- but the thing is, is the, the thing is, though, but this is really important because this, this shows you everything about what's going on. And you know what? You can say it's one person, but I never know in advance if it's one person. So let's say that we set confessional hours. Or let's say we would have done what we were thought about doing and just set a chair there and said, I'd have been the first guy in line, you know. But here's the thing. What sort of reaction do people have to that? I mean, and just so you know, there's a long tradition of bells in the Lutheran church. I don't know if you know this, but 
and people always get it all knotted up with transubstantiation, a way to explain the sacrament. The bells were there 300 years before transubstantiation was there, okay? And when Lutherans got nervous, how many of, you ring, how many of your home churches ring the bell at the Lord's Prayer, the Lutheran Church? Mine? Anybody? Yeah? Right. Where, did they ever explain to you why they do that? Yeah, nobody ever told you why. You know why they did it? Because when they got nervous at the Eucharist point, they just moved it over to the Lord's Prayer. Because after all, everybody can agree on prayer and that's safe. That's really the tradition. Exactly. But we like the bell, so we'll ring it during the... My home church still rings it three times during the Lord's Prayer. I have no idea why. I just know that the, that the usher moves over and rings the bell. What's that? Seminary does it too. So, I mean, I mean but, but see, I mean, see, so here's the thing. This is the thing that has a, a history of a thousand years in the church that Lutherans did until they got too chicken to do it. Oh, you know, like confession or the Eucharist every week. And, um, you know, so, and we restored it at, and who else comes on Christmas Eve at 10 p.m. except the hardest of the hardcore, crazy Lutheran types? I mean, if you come to a late service, if you come to any service here after 8 o'clock, you are on your own because we're going to do whatever we want. And you're just going to have to live with it, okay? Because we figure if you're nuts enough to come out after 8 o'clock, you want the full boat, right? Stephen learned so much from that conversation, though, that you guys had about bells or no bells. He came home. He was, first of all, laughing so hard. As someone who... Did he overhear this? That was almost the end of me, you remember that. Yes, right. (laughs) My first, I don't know if you know this, my first year here, I just, it was like Tuesday. And they said, are you having ashes? Somebody said to me, are you having, in the staff, are you having ashes for Ash Wednesday? I said, I don't know, what do you do here? And I went down to the school office when the school office was this place. I just said, do you have ashes for Ash Wednesday? And they said, yeah. I said, okay, well, then we're having ashes. Well, then I had ashes. And literally, all hell broke loose by 1.30. Yeah, I mean, it was like, and then I went back and I said, you said you have it. Well, we do have ashes in the first grade room occasionally on Ash Wednesday. I'm like, oh, this is not going to be good. So this is true. So we canceled ashes. You know, I, I'm a new pastor. I said, and I, I mean, this was to the point where the elders sat me down in between the two services, okay? I mean, this was a big deal because the place lit up. And then I said, look, I was just trying to do what you, it's up, you know. And then, so we didn't have ashes at the late service. Whole, you, then all hell broke loose again because they wanted ashes. And somebody came back, no lie in the section, was pounding on the, they're like, I've been waiting for ashes for 25 years in this congregation. I heard we have my cane tonight. Where are my ashes? And I'm just like, this is places full of nutty people. It's full of nuts. This is, this is just, this, you, everybody is crazy here. Well, I know. So here's the thing. How, how, but the thing is, but the part of it is, is even, this is a little why, you know, I know incense isn't for everybody, but you know what? And you know what? Here's the thing. We, we don't do it that often, you know. And, and I, you know, there's, 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 but some people, I mean, how many of you wear perfume? Raise your hand if you wear perfume. Actually, my wife doesn't either. 
So, I mean, half of you wear perfume and the other half don't, either out of preference or because you're allergic to it or you don't like it. Yeah, exactly. But, see, I've got a whole kind of, I have to live with all of you. So should I ban perfume in this room or should I let it? See, I mean, you see how this works? I, you know, you're really going places where the bishop doesn't want us to go. <coughs> I'll come and just say, oh, uh, yeah, uh, two minutes, right? All right, quit. Well, I mean, I really had four of the things I wanted to talk about, but this is, okay. Really? I don't want to go too long, because I, I know you have other things planned. Go ahead. No, that's, that's all right. No, yeah, that's all right. Right. And when we do personal confession or in yeah. prayer, right. it's very easy to justify your Absolutely. actions. Absolutely. And you only go so far Can I say like two really things to that? Right. Exactly. And what's really interesting is pastors, here's two things, just two things for you to know. I would love to think that you're all sweetness and light. Sometimes you were asking about why people don't come to confessions. They think pastors want to know stuff. If I never knew one more bad thing about anybody in this congregation, I, mean, I can't wait for heaven because I don't want to know anything bad about any of you. And it's this horrible burden to know stuff about people. It is horrible. And frankly, um, there is this thing, and I've talked to other people. It's interesting. You get this sort of amnesia about people. You know what's really, what's really hard for me? When, when I, people come in for confession and they were saying, and they start by saying, as I was saying last time, and they start to rattle stuff off, and I'm like, as you were saying last time, I can't, and you remember my cousin Billy, and then it was like, and you just, you, you know, you, I'm, I'm going, and then if you can't remember, which I, you know, sort of can't remember, then they think you don't love them. And I, and I think to myself, you know, I just, Cousin Billy is the last person I actually want to ever think about again. So there is this, and you can justify it, but, but I don't, we also don't, people who often come, what's really interesting, people who come once to private confession often don't get it because pastors tend to be very gentle and not probing the first time through. And then often what happens is people, I would say this happens 30 or 40% of the time, people think, well, there wasn't much to that. The reason there wasn't much to that is because they're so nervous about the first time they come, they don't put all their cards on the table. They only put as much as they think they can bear. And then forgiveness comes in equal proportion, not equal proportion, comes proportionately to that, which is I can only forgive the sins that were confessed. And if they don't all get on the table, it's not that they don't all get forgiven, but they don't all get the direct application of what comes next. And it's only after you develop a relationship with somebody week after week, year after year, where they sit down and you can, it's sort of like having a doctor. You have a doctor that you go to? I mean, I have a great doctor now. And when I sit down, you know, after being with him for 10 years, I mean, when I sit down, my encounter is completely different than it was the first time I went to him because he just, just, he just sort of pulls me apart and I'm so grateful for it. He's just so nice. I'm going to come around. I'm going to swing right through. Go ahead. Yeah. And the seventh page was reserved for the sexual sins, and she wasn't sure if she was going to lay those out on the table. Yeah. And she was going to wait until she kind of met the 
Right, yeah. And so she decided like halfway through, okay, she was just going to, you know, confess all this stuff and, and see what happens. And as they're leaving um, the, the building, you know, she's like, boy, oh boy, I just, I just really thought you were going to think horribly of me after what I confessed. And he turns and says to her, you know what, I really couldn't even tell you what you just confessed because thankfully the Lord has blessed me with this, like, amnesia about all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. We have notes. I'm not taking notes. Yeah. yeah. Like I have no interest. The other thing I was going to say is the way, I love the way you're doing it with the kids. And I've been trying to encourage my boys to come to private confession. But, and I think this will be the thing that helps them because the, there's a liturgy. And by saying we're not going to allow you, because you, you go through this elaborate confession that is written, that right. you can read right now and get comfy with. But, and then it says, if the penitent has anything else to add, this is the point to do it. But the thing is, is, is that that confession, there is nothing that it does not cover. Right. And so you, you can go to confession ten times and never have an extra thing to tack on. Right. And it'll still be okay. Right. But I find it interesting that you said that there are kids who are now wanting to talk about a specific thing. And I think what it says is, if there is anything that troubles you particularly. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Because everything is confessed right. with the liturgy. But it's if there's something in particular that you, you can't get over. Right. Yes, did the Lord die for this? And then the pastor says you, he, he died for that too. And there's a, there's a large freedom in that. Yeah, that's, that's very well put. I just have no, you know, ah. It's, it's like, oh well, you know. I'm going to come back to you. I think you're up first and then I'll go. Go ahead. Uh-huh. Um, I can give you easy ones, and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you harder ones. Um, you know, the rob in the bank thing is easy. I mean, you just you can't keep somebody else's money and remain an honest woman. So that's an undoing of it, you know. Because what, what happens in confession and forgiveness is, it's really simple. This is what happens. Wrongs are made right, okay? So you come in and you confess, and you're squared up with the Lord. He forgives you for being a bank robber or a you know, whatever it is. But you can't sort of profit from the sin or carry on with the fruits of the sin or leave a thing undone. And I think slander is a, is a great example. Here's why. Because people are so given to it. It's just so easy, you know. And what happens is it spreads. And basically, to go back to somebody and say, I lied to you, I mean, I'll just take you. I lied to you about my wife, and I'm very sorry. I should have never said that about her. And, and please, you know, forget that. That's, that's all I'm talking about. Because what that does is that unsettles the lie. It kicks the foundation out from under it. I'm not, and I'm not suggesting this as something that um, is a good work that sort of merits your forgiveness. I'm, I'm now moving to the point where how you live within your forgiveness, you can't touch unholy things after you've been forgiven. You know, you can't sort of carry them around anymore. There's this great divide between what's sacred and profane. And so it sort of hands off. So any good you can put into the system, you put in. I always say to my kids, you know, don't put any more evil into the world. The world is filled with evil. Don't add to the burden. 
you know, don't add to it. And, and, and if you can ever undo some evil, you know, undo it. Not, and I'm not saying more than that. I'm not saying you earn anything by it. I'm just saying this is just how a Christian lives. I mean, we make, I mean, what does John mean when he says bear fruit that befits repentance? Or when Jesus says, you know, follow behind me and leave everything else behind, mother, father, sister, brother, previous life here. You leave anything that's, that's tainted. I'm not suggesting that that is in any way earns your forgiveness. But I am suggesting it is part of the Christian life. If I, if I sin against the world, I need to be reconciled to you. I don't want you to go on living the rest of your life to think that there's something between us. And it's, it's not, so just play with that a little bit. Well, it, it's, it's penance in the best sense, which is, yeah, it's not penance in the classic Catholic sense unless you do this. Although, I don't know if you saw, did you see 60 Minutes the other night? Did anybody see this? There was a, I don't know why you would watch it. There's a mafioso guy who was a hitman, like he did 28 murders and he was out. And they were talking about all the corruption, but he had this little thing and he said, how do you feel about it? This is brilliant. Did anybody see this? He said, I'm fine. And the guy, you know, his, the, the interviewer goes, you know, with his piousness, what do you mean you're fine? He says, oh, you know, I'm Catholic. I, I went to the priest. And he says, you went to the priest? He said, yeah. I told him about all of them. Well, what did he do? And there's just this indignation rising. And he said, he forgave me. And then, and then he said, well, did he give you any penance to do anything? He said, oh, yeah, I think it was ten Our Fathers and ten Hail Marys. And he said, that's all? And he goes, well, yeah, that's all. And then it's all squared up. It was brilliant. Because, in fact, it was even squared up before. And see, the thing is, if I, went to, if I went to somebody who said to me, you know what would be good for you today? You should probably say the Lord's Prayer ten times a day. I'd probably say, yeah, you're probably right. That's, you know, that's about seven times more than I normally say it, and that'd probably be good for me in some way. Now, see, so you can either hear that as you've got to make up for it, which you can't, or you can hear it as, this is just what Christians do. They say the Lord's Prayer. Can you hear it that way? Try to hear it that way. So I don't, often when we talk about this, I know people get, we talk about good works around here and people get nervous about it. Just kind of let your normal Lutheran, we're not saying you're earning anything. We're saying, once you've been completely forgiven, squared up, what does the Christian life look like? Well, gosh, you wouldn't want anything to be wrong. I wouldn't want there to be anything between us. You know, you're my sister in Christ. We live together in this space. And if you think ill of me or I think ill of you, gosh, I squared it up with the Lord, but I want to square it up with you. Remember, there's three commandments and seven. You know, let's try to live like a community. Let's try to be grateful. Let's try to love. You can't, I mean, if you're married or if you have kids, you can't love people that you're, no, that's not fair. Love isn't as easy when there's something between you. You have to work harder at it. Yes, please, I'm going to go there. And we're running. I know I'm on fumes okay, here. You know, I just okay, go. Comment about how when you go to confession, you actually don't <clears> even you know, you should just, you know, and maybe we're lax and maybe we need to do this. Maybe you're farther along than I am. Maybe not. Here's what I don't want to happen, though. When we finally do do it, it's a little like draining the chalice at the end. We talk about drinking the chalice and eating the elements. We probably talked about that for four years, and then we did it, and we still had some people who couldn't figure out why, why we were doing it. It's just because that's what Jesus says to do, eat and drink it, and that's what you do. You know, I guess we want to talk about this enough that by the time it does come, sort of public and normal. And as Catherine said, one of, the, one of the things we've talked about, we visited a scat of churches in one of the places. I mean, if all things work out, you're going to have this big old Jesus on a cross, and you'll be able to kneel or sit just beneath him and say whatever you want to say if everything works out between the altar and the cross. Well, that's going to be, uh, that's not determined. 
Yes. The, the Bethany Jesus scares me. He has such a big head. <laughs> he has such a big head. He scares me. He's scary Jesus. He's a big headed Jesus, like big head Todd and the monsters. Big head Jesus. And the, he does. He frightens me. <laughs> well, but, but this, you know, I don't, I, well, well you, you'll need both of them. Well, and, and I, you, you know what's real honest? We've already had this conversation. Is that, you know, sort of, there, one of the things we sort of talked about is he probably can't be too gory because people won't be able to take the too goriness. And then what do we say if it's the pure goriness? I'll show you a picture of one I, 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 I liked. Well, I think I gave it away now, but, um, well, I don't know. And I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, yeah, you do have a risen Jesus and the victory. In the, that's right. Something between the goriness and the glory. Something between. Now, I actually have one that I love, although I'm very nervous about imposing my artistic sense on anybody. I saw one in Rome in a, in a church where he was, um, one is, it, was on a, it didn't have a crossbar, so he's on a pole, which is meant to evoke, I think, the snake in the wilderness, where Jesus says, I'm the one that's going to be raised up. And he was clearly wounded, but his head was partially up, but his hands were sort of outstretched, but they were outstretched in a way that they sort of made the crossbar and ascended all at the same time. And for me, it was this perfect combination of, of, of I was crucified, and I'm still risen, and I'm still in pain, but I'm still in the way, which is very much how it is for us. Anyway, the point of all that is there should be a place for this. Yes, please. You've waited so long, and you've been so patient. I know. I'm sorry. Why is that? Can you identify? Can you identify exactly? They do love it. Can you identify why? Can you think you know why? Why do you think it is? That's right. For somebody else, yeah. <laughs> but they're so normally when people get to the point where they'll go to an A meeting, they're so broken, and they've been so worn out. That, I mean, they actually have taken all of this seriously. They actually were able to read these words. Do you really think that you should go straight to hell for what you've done? Man, I'm in hell already. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So the thing is, is part of us is, and see, now this is an outgrowth of not having it because here's the thing. If you sort of just skate by or, or you had nothing to say or you didn't do it very often, you actually don't get good at examining yourself. Here's the thing. You have to get really good at examining yourself and then a hundred times better at living within forgiveness. And so it's both of those things. And if you talk to people who go through, who are alcoholics, they regularly work hard at living within that forgiveness. Well, and they also regularly work hard right? at, 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 at putting Yes, they do. They, 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 that's right. Yeah, I've gone to people, moved through people. Yeah. It's a broken world that we're trying to put back together. And see, the church is supposed to be anti this. You see this? This is why, this is the problem with the church. Because we absorb this template and we, we put it on each other and we put it on the church. And then we say, wow, if, we have, if we're, we have a lot of stuff or if we know a lot of stuff or if it really works, if my church really works, then I belong to the right church, right? 
So, I mean, I'll just give you an exa uh, last thing, and then I've got to go. But this is just a real example. You know, um, there have been a couple of people who have been pressing Pastor Nelson for yet another youth group. So we always say, and I'm just, I'm just be real honest with you, this is this kind of stuff we deal with all the time. We said, who are they? Who are the people pressing? And then the people were named. And we said, those people don't come to church. But they want the pastor to offer another youth group. No, they just want another. There's, I don't want to reveal too much because then it's too easy to pin it on somebody. But they're just saying there should be yet another youth group. I mean, there's all these things that we already do. And then they said there should still yet be another youth group where people go. And, and we said, why? why they, well, you mean activity. yes, exactly. And the pastor should be there. The pastor should, the pastor should show up and run yet another program. This is what it's, you see. And then we sort of said, well, who's, who's asking for this? Because we don't really understand. And then they sort of put the names out. And we said, yeah, but none of these people come to church. And none of these p people put their kids in Sunday school where the Lord has already given out his gifts and we already have people going. I know, but they would come to this one if you would come. And our answer is, no, they wouldn't. If you don't bring your kids to church, we're doing nothing else for your kids, okay? And, and this probably needs to be a better stance for us. Until you understand that church is where your kids belong, there's this great book. In fact, we may read it. If I, I would need to have a read through it. Alexander Schmemann, who is a great Greek Orthodox theologian, wrote a, wrote a, wrote a book on, a very short book on educating children. Okay, And he says, the demise of the church was when Sunday school was played off against church, where parents went to church and kids went to Sunday school. Do you know when I came here, when I came, that's what you had. And I, this is 10 years ago, so I can say it without getting too much trouble. Do you know that I had kids in confirmation? I had a third of my class in confirmation that had never been to church. Okay, Now you know why? Because they had church and Sunday school at the same time. So I, here I am, ready to polish kids up and push them to the Eucharist. And they've never been in church before. Do you know what that's like? How can you explain to kids what the Eucharist is if they've never been in church? It's impossible. You have to start from like they're first graders, like they're pagans, you know. So here's the thing. There's plenty of stuff going on. Come to church. Get your kids to confirmation. Put your kids in Sunday school. And then if they still need more, we'll talk. But they don't need more because we can give them everything they need in those locales. You don't, need, you don't need more activities. You all need less activities. I say as I'm going to try to be at two basketball games tonight at the same time, in Marengo and Elgin. Okay? I really intended to do four things today. That was one. Um, you know. But actually, it's a good thing. The next thing you might, well, just read. A, okay, so read a little bit more, would you, from like, to one, like, you're, you need to go from about 164 to about 175. Read about 10 pages, come back. There's some very interesting things about how the world should work, about the catechumenate, which is we're just about to launch here if we ever get done. Some other things. Anything else, questions about anything? You should not take anything I say today about confession as me sort of putting the hammer down on you. You'll come when you need it. Um, but what I want to do is I want to get to a generation, maybe your kids, maybe mine, who understand that their need is all there. We're all bound up. I mean, I can't find a guy. You don't know if you want to come. You don't know what to do. We don't know how to plan it for it. I mean, it's all, all this stuff is kind of crinkly. But I will tell you, I, my, among my greatest temptations, last time I was, when I was in Paris, I happened to be at the Mass, and the chair was right there. Now I won't go because I know that the, 
I make a pre-sin if I do this. But the confessional's right there. I'm sitting in Notre Dame. The, ma- the bishop is at the mass right there. I'm sitting there. The confessional's right there. And I can see the guy. There's a glass thing with a sheet. And all I can see is the guy's shoes. And I'm thinking, there's only two shoes there. He's all alone. He really wants to talk to me. He really wants to talk to me. No, you just kind of get it. It's like many of us don't have these enormous sins that are troubling us. It's just our sinful nature. Right. Our regular, basic sinful nature that troubles us. And yet, it doesn't seem, I don't want to say big enough to go to confession Right. It's like, oh, hey, what would I say to Pastor Nelson? Why would you go to those pastors? But just just so you know, it's not it's actually not un, it's not uncommon actually for pastors' wives in the old days. This is actually true. In the old days, there was a pastor normally in the circuit of pastors who did hear confession from all the other pastors' wives. It's not uncommon that when you come, they'd say, "And he's the pastor who will care for your wife," which is a very nice thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, it's. Yeah. I just, I just said hell. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And part of the, th- it's kind of like your car. You know how when your car, like it still runs, but the tail light is out and the brakes squeak and it's a little rough starting and there's Taco Bell on the floor and uh, sorry and you know and you just you have 14 things wrong and you just sort of you just sort of say uh, this isn't that pleasant. That's how our lives are. And if you just sort of had that cleaned up. And I'm not saying anything that it doesn't get cleaned up upstairs. I know it does in the regular. I know it does. This is just one more, you know. Oh, it's completely easier to hide, not pay attention. Or also, yeah, right. Yeah. Or not feel it, that, it, that it hits you. You know, people come and it's like, that's the great thing about the Eucharist. When it's take, eat, there's no doubt about who it's going to. But confession, when we sort of put it out with a garden hose. Yeah, people can, you know, sometimes not get what. Yeah, exactly. That was brilliant, actually. It is the light that we fear more. Yeah. All right, we got to go. That's way too long. Let's pray and let's go.